Please pray with me. Lord God, you have declared to us that the Holy Spirit is alive and active and that through the Holy Spirit, the word of God is sharp and it pierces our hearts. And Lord, it is our desire that our hearts be pierced by your word today in the power of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, we come to you and we open our hearts to you, eager for you to do your work, the only work, the work that only you can do to transform us, to convict us, to encourage us, to lift our hearts, to bring us to yourself. It's in that desire, that hope, that joy, that expectation that we come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. It is wonderful to be with you. I, um, not only is it a joy for me to be at Church of the Cross, which is a church that I deeply and dearly love, but it's also a wonder and a joy to be with you on Palm Sunday, this great celebration of the church here. I have had the privilege of ministering um, in East Africa probably about 15 times, primarily in Rwanda, but more recently in Uganda. My first trip to Uganda was just two years ago in March of 2019, and I was ministering alongside Bishop Alfred Olwa in the Diocese of Lango in North Central Uganda. And although I've had the privilege of ministering many times overseas, I've never experienced in my life such responsiveness to the word of God and to the gospel. It was just an amazing experience. I could tell you all sorts of stories, show you hundreds of pictures and videos. It was a wonderful blessing. Bishop Owai is a great visionary leader. He is a passionate evangelist. He is a wonderful shepherd of this large diocese. And one of the most unforgettable memories of the trip was that Bishop Owa renamed me. He named me Bishop Kana, and he introduced me everywhere as Bishop Kana. Well, Kana in the Luo language, which is the national, the native language there, means donkey. So he basically was introducing me as Bishop Donkey. Now, Owa is a great jokester. And so when he would say this, uh, the, and the people of Uganda, by the way, loved to laugh. And they, would, they weren't really knowing how to respond to this. What, what does he mean? He's a donkey. He's Bishop Donkey. But then he'd go on to explain, Bishop Steve is Bishop Donkey because he is here to carry Jesus from village to village to village. And in fact, that's exactly what I did. In five days, I preached in 11 different villages and three different universities. And it was just an incredible experience for me. And I got to say, it was a great privilege to be the Lord Jesus's donkey to carry Jesus from place to place. Now, you might never have stopped to think about it, but anyone familiar with the story of Palm Sunday knows that donkey plays a role. He is, or he or she, we don't know, is the bearer of Jesus. And it's easy for us to sort of read the story and look at the donkey as sort of an incidental stage prop, you know, kind of part of the scenery, like the garments on the ground or the palms waving in the air, you know, kind of just there. But in fact, the donkey pay, plays an important role, a key that unlocks the meaning of the whole event. And what I, as we get into this, we prayed earlier today that the Lord, uh, we're beginning this week of the Paschal mystery coming to a climax. And I do encourage you to consider that this conversation around the donkey is part of that mystery and that beauty and that wonder that just sort of weaves together and leads us to the events that we're going to celebrate next weekend. 
Let me just begin by observing from Luke chapter 19 from the gospel passage that Jesus does not consider the donkey as incidental. In fact, it's clearly orchestrated, it's planned. He instructed two disciples to go to a nearby village and find a donkey. He explained, in fact, that it was gonna be the foal of a donkey. So a young donkey, a colt that had never been ridden before. He instructed them on what to do and how to get the donkey and all of that was prophetic, all that was intentional, all that was prepared, all that was planned. And the reason for that is that this donkey, this, this detail of a foal of a donkey that had never been ridden pulls together significant aspects of Israel's prophetic history, something that God had been planning throughout redemptive history. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 49 and begin. In my Bible, the heading of Genesis chapter 49 is that Jacob, it says Jacob blesses his sons. Uh, if you read some of these blessings, they sound a whole lot more like curses. I'm not really sure that blessing is the right word to describe them. And in fact, Jacob doesn't call it a blessing. He says, gather yourselves together in verse one, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. So the first surprise is that the oldest son, Simeon, excuse me, Reuben is completely rejected, soundly rejected as the family leader, the bearer of the family legacy and the heir of the promises of Abraham that figure so prominently into the patriarchal narratives. Sons two and three, Simeon and Levi, are similarly dismissed as unworthy of bearing the leadership role and the heritage of the promise going forward. And after these three sons are declared unworthy of leadership or honor, we get to Judah, the fourth son, in verse eight. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah's a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, there are several, several vivid images of leadership that emerge, but I want to pause and just note that last one. Until tribute comes to him in verse 10, and a large number of Hebrew texts literally says, until Shiloh comes. And Shiloh came over time to represent a place of rest, a place of tranquility, a place where we could find peace. And therefore what it's saying is, is that Judah and his heirs will eventually bring peace when he reigns, when people obey him. Now, if you keep on reading, you read in verse 11 something else. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey to the donkey's coat to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Verse 11 is mysterious. And by the way, when I say mysterious, I hope that that's a, a good word to you. It's not mysterious and a stranger, sinister word. It's like it causes us to think. It, it, it's meant to intrigue us. But clearly what we see in verse 11 is that there's something about the vine and the foal of a donkey being tied together in one moment. And if you read that back from the context of our understanding of the Gospels, it suggests something very powerful. Because for centuries, God had proclaimed and called the nation of Israel his choice vine, and it was meant to bear fruit. Israel was meant to bear fruit that would bring beauty and blessing to the whole world. But it was a vision that Israel failed to fulfill. 
And they had failed to fulfill this vine, uh, this blessing of uh, fruitfulness and blessing to the world. But Jesus announces on Monday, Thursday, in John chapter 15, in our gospel readings, I am the true vine. I am the true Israel. So tie that together with what Jacob said 2,000 years earlier, that a donkey's colt would be bound to the choice vine, the supreme vine, and it had something to do with the descendant of Judah. And if you remember correctly, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. And so you're starting to see together how this weaves into a picture of the coming king that God had planned from the beginning of time. Add to that, there's this mention that his garments would be washed in wine, the blood of grapes. And even though the precise meaning seems mysterious, the suggestions are powerful. You've got Judah, the heir of Judah, Judah's son, a donkey, a vine, blood-red garments. And this is a swirling around in a mystery that piques our interest and intrigues us. Now, Judah's prophetic statement about the royal tribe of Judah, excuse me, Jacob's prophetic statement about the royal tribe of Judah in the fold of a donkey plays out in Israelite history because the donkey literally shows up in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel in association with the kings of Israel. Saul rode a donkey on the procession when he was proclaimed king. Now, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, and he didn't last. He was replaced by David from the tribe of Judah. And David rode a donkey into Jerusalem when he was proclaimed king. Absalom, David's son, rides a donkey as a symbolic proclamation of himself as king when he attempted a coup. After that rebellion is put down, David returns to Jerusalem on a donkey, riding into the city from the Mount of Olives, following the exact same route that David's greater son would follow a thousand years later. And when he came back in after that rebellion, he literally was bringing peace and tranquility and the end to war. Later, Solomon is recognized and declared king when he rides into Jerusalem on his father David's donkey. It was important for which of those sons would be king for him to ride the, 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 uh, the donkey that David rode. And in fact, what happened after then is that the coronation procession of Israelite kings were always on a donkey. Now, that's an unexpected picture for me. <laughs> I don't know about for you, because we think of donkeys as simple beasts of burden, um, but, and they are broadly used as beasts of burden. But what I didn't know until I started studying it a little bit is that donkeys are famous for being really smart. They are protectors. They're like alarm systems for flocks and for other, for other uh, cattle and herds. Uh, in fact, if you read the internet, you'll find out the consensus is that they're a whole lot smarter than, uh, than horses, which you know, for horse owners seems to be like, are you kidding? But it's really true. In fact, I checked it out with some horse owners from uh, around our church in Kentucky, and they said, absolutely. Donkeys are a lot smarter than horses. But in Israel, here's the point. They're royal steeds. And as far as we know, that's all rooted back to this prophecy in Genesis 49. The horse was a royal steed, but it was a war animal. The kings of Israel rode donkeys when they were proclaiming peace, when they were declaring and making clear that there was no, that, that there, that there was no contest to the throne and that they were coming to bring peace and well-being to the nation. Now let's go forward to the other prophecy that we read today from Zechariah chapter nine. This is packed with messages. Uh, verse nine, 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? This is the direct prophecy that we see fulfilled in the great triumphal entry. The king, the king of Zion, will come to the city on the back of the foal of a donkey. And he will come as a righteous and humble king, bringing salvation defeating conflict, cutting off the battle bow, speaking peace, conquering hostility and fear, reconciling warring factions, setting prisoners free through the blood of the covenant. And he says, you prisoners, you are now prisoners of hope because of this promise, because of this prophecy. Even if you in this moment remain in prison, you are imprisoned with hope. So Jesus's choice to ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey is a very powerful symbolic, symbolic declaration that combines prophecy and history and proclaims through this prophetic symbolization that he's the king, he's the Messiah, he's the Christ, he's the long expected ruler of Israel, he's the heir of David who will occupy the throne forever. He's the king of peace, he's the king of righteousness, the king whose blessed rule will extend to the nation. He is the true vine, the true Israel, through whom the entire world would be blessed. And if we scroll forward to the actual event in Luke chapter 19, we see that many people got it. They put it together. They figured it out. And so they proclaimed the truth. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king. Peace in heaven. Glory in the highest. And each Sunday when we do the Eucharistic prayer, we actually say that same thing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We're talking about Jesus, obviously. But what's not clear in Luke chapter 19 in the moment of this event is how this peace and righteousness and blessing will be achieved. And that's where I really want us to sort of follow in and, and take this beginning more and more personally. In verse 42, it says this, or in verse 41, pick it up. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. The things that make for true peace are not yet recognized, but they will begin to unfold when the king of Israel refuses to take up the sword that Israel so desperately expected and demanded he take up, but instead takes up the cross. He takes up the role of a servant. He walks toward Calvary. The path that he walks includes submission to arrest, to injustice, and to the power of Israel's hated enemies, the Romans. And his arrest, his submission, his willingness to do that turns the crowds against him. So disappointment turns to offense and anger. And you got to wonder how many people who were crying out Hosanna on Palm Sunday eventually cried out, crucify him on Good Friday because they were just so hurt and offended and confused by his path to peace. But as Jesus has already said, Jerusalem, you really just don't have any idea. You have no idea what the peace is. What God the Son is doing to achieve peace is on a far deeper level than political peace, world peace, material peace, any other kind of peace that we might want because he achieves peace between God and humanity by the atoning blood of the cross. And that's what we're gonna be talking about all this next week. Now, it's easy for us 
for our culture, for sure, to dismiss Palm Sunday as sort of a quaint, fairly irrelevant part of the Christian lore. And even in the church, I think it's easy for us to think of it a little more uh, as a little more than a Sunday where children kind of have some fun and dance around like we saw in the video and that sort of thing. We might think of it as signaling the beginning of the end of Lent. Easter is on the horizon. But in fact, this event offers a package of powerful prophetic fulfillments and continuing promises that call us to faith in Jesus, to worship Jesus, and to marvel at Jesus. And that's what I really want us to think about, guys. This clearly calls us to faith, to believe this one. It calls us to worship him because he is the fulfillment of all of the promises of redemption that began with the fall of humanity. And to marvel at Jesus, to understand something that I think we need to understand, we never know enough to know him. In other words, there's always more to know. As I look at these prophecies and I dig into them, there's some mystery about them. There's some beauty about them. There's things that I don't completely understand. That's okay. Because how in the world can I pretend to ever understand fully Jesus Christ? I think it's also for us important for us to remember that clearly that when Jesus came, there were great movements of his life that were prepared and planned and prophesied for centuries and for millennia. And what happened when Jesus came to this planet in the flesh, he claimed them for himself. And that was a bold move to say, this is who I am. All these expectations are fulfilled in me. But in so doing, he was calling people to himself as he did throughout his entire ministry. And dear brothers and sisters, we will never exhaust the depths of what it means for us to be called simply to Jesus, to come to Jesus, to keep coming to Jesus, to go deeper and deeper. Remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter three, that his entire life goal is to know Christ. And I encourage you, allow this to just simply lift your hearts a little bit and intrigue you a little bit so that you will seek to know Christ more and more. He is, by the way, the one who made good on the claim because we know that eight days from now that he will rise victorious, the King and Lord of the universe. At the same time, I think one of the fun things about this Palm Sunday is that he is also humble and gentle and unwaveringly approachable so that children can come running to him as they did on Palm Sunday and we saw in the video. And I wanna end with reminding us of one small prophetic word that I mentioned from Genesis chapter 49. Nothing is wasted by the way. Nothing is wasted in the word of God. This word Shiloh, this promise of rest and tranquility when the son of Judah, when the tribe of Judah, the person from the tribe of Judah is obeyed. That's what it says literally, when it is obeyed. When we obey him, he offers tranquility and rest. Well, this is the same Jesus who speaks in Matthew 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all ye that are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's an invitation. It's also a call, a call of obedience to come to Jesus. So as you enter into Holy Week, I want to encourage you to consider what is the call of obedience of faith that he is making on your life. 
And then I also want you to consider what is the call of obedience of action. Because to follow Jesus is never just something we do in our brain. And in fact, often our brains don't know what it means to believe Jesus. But our bodies do. Our spirits do. Our wills do. And God has called us to the obedience of faith and the obedience of action. And those two things come together. And even when our faith is unclear, we are not understanding the obedience of action allows us to continue to be followers of Jesus. And in following him, we know him. And in knowing him, we love him. May Christ be praised. May we celebrate this week, Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.